I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the books of Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, with Dr. Paul S. Evans. He is the professor of Old Testament at McMaster Divinity College in Canada. Uh, so, Dr. Evans, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me on. All righty. So before we dive into Samuel, uh, can you give us some background just so people get an idea of where you're coming from, your own theological or ecclesial perspective, what traditions you've been part of? Sure. Um, so I grew up as a, uh, a Baptist pastor's kid. So I grew up in uh, British Columbia, mostly in Western Canada. And um, my dad was a pastor since I maybe kindergarten for me or something like that. So for a long time. And he was part of a, it's called the Fellowship Baptist Churches in Canada. And uh, actually, my wife's a pastor's kid, too. Her her dad was a, uh, and still is, a, uh, a Pentecostal pastor. So we kind of have this kind of mixed background that way. So as, when I grew when I grew up, uh, when I moved out of the house, for a little while, I attended a Pentecostal church, which is where I met my wife and uh, stole the pastor's daughter and got married. But uh I still kind of, uh, we kind of went back to sort of my Baptist roots for most of our married life now and kind of a Baptistic in theology, um, definitely um, on a conservative evangelical side of things, but have had experience in several churches. So I also was a evangelical free pastor for a while in Ontario. Um, I'm not sure if these denominations cross over into the United States or not, but it, it's it's a, it's a conservative uh um, evangelical uh, denomination here as well. So I, I pastored, uh, I originally went to Bible college to uh, to be a pastor. I felt a call in my life to pastor. And as I studied there, um, after a few years of studying, I just got so uh, such a passion for learning more about the Old Testament. I originally was just going to do an undergraduate and then uh, my plan was to be a youth pastor at that time. And then as I learned more, I, I wanted to continue on to graduate work so eventually it just kept going and I wanted to learn more and uh, I felt a call to teach as I had opportunities to teach in the church I really felt uh, kind of God's pleasure my our, I was very excited um, with the chances to minister in, in, in understanding God's word better and to learn for myself and so I felt a call to to teaching ministry so eventually um, started teaching part-time as I did a PhD at the University of Toronto and also pastor during that time, um, that evangelical free church I was talking about. And then uh, eventually my first full-time um, professor post was in Calgary, Alberta at Ambrose University, which is of the uh, Christian Missionary Alliance and Nazarene uh, denominations. And so I, I was taught there for a few years, and then I moved to McMaster in 2009 and been there ever since. And McMaster has Baptist roots, but it ha- it's a really interdenominational school. So most of our students aren't actually Baptist, but that is, uh, we are officially a Baptist school from the Baptist Convention of Ontario and Quebec. So that's kind of where uh, a little bit about my journey. Yeah. All right. Good, good. All right. So let's get into Samuel. So some background information, author, date. Um, Where does uh, Samuel fit in the biblical canon and the uh, occasion for the writing of the book? Right. So Samuel is one of those, uh, it's an interesting book that it's called Samuel, because if you read the story, of course, Samuel dies in 1 Samuel, 
and isn't around in, in Second Samuel at all. And so it's interesting, it's named Samuel. So clearly Samuel's not the author of, of the books. Not that he couldn't have contributed to some of First Samuel, but he does he, he doesn't survive the whole story. Um, comes back post-mortem in one uh, fascinating chapter. But uh, the books of Samuel are, are really anonymous then, which is similar to many of the books in the Old Testament. And so the books, Judges, or Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, none of them have an author that is... Um, claimed by the text so they're kind of they're anonymous and so most scholarship holds that there are they're all part of a, a united history that is um the story that's told from joshua to the end of second kings is one united work in a lot of ways but not that someone just decided to write it all up off the top of their head or of whole cloth like made it up but they uh, so the person who completed the works uh, was drawing on previously written works. So scholars often refer to this as the Deuteromistic history, which is just a theory that um, scholars have about the authorship of these works and uh, an acknowledgement that they were influenced by the book of Deuteronomy quite significantly. That's how they judge their kings. They, they quote from Deuteronomy, they use language from Deuteronomy. And so the, the author of these books is often referred to as the Deuteronomist, for lack of a better term, it's just uh, the anonymous author who finished the work. When we're trying to date the works of First uh, and Second Samuel, they're part of this larger history of of Joshua to the end of Second Kings, and the end of Second Kings ends uh, probably around 560 BC. The exile having started, or Jerusalem destroyed in 586 BC, so about 16 years later or so, Jehoiakim, um, a king of Israel of Judah who was taken captivity by the Babylonians, is kind of released from his his captivity partially and is brought to eat at the table of the Babylonian king. And there's a measure of hope with this at the end, I, I, the way I see it, the end of Kings, that the son of David is given this uh, higher seat. It's actually the same word as throne. So he's kind of given this throne. It says it's above all the other kings that are with him. Uh, and uh, there's this hopeful outlook that maybe the promises of David could keep going. But anyway, for as far as dating goes, that was probably around 560 was the last date, uh, the last event that could be dated from that history. So most hold that the the Deuteronomic history or this this large epic of Israel's history was completed in the exile because there's no hint of them coming back from the exile. Like the book of Chronicles ends with the return from exile, or at least the proclamation that they can go back with Cyrus, the king of Persia, saying anyone who wants to go back, go back and build the temple for the Lord. So the, uh, the book of Chronicles is written in the, in the post-exilic period, but it seems that Kings is completed while they're still living in the exile. So in light of this, it's, it's, a, it's important to note, I think, because as we read the story and think about who it's written for, it's written for people who are living in the exile originally now the bible is written for all of us so i'm not saying it's just written for them but it was written to them initially and uh they they were in the exile they probably had questions of what happened why are we here and uh how do we get the exile and so one of the themes you see throughout the history is the continue break continual breaking of the covenant especially in the book of kings we see how the leadership of israel continued to fail them and uh, there's a few standout kings that bring Israel back um, to their covenant uh, with God. But most of them are 
turning away or uh, neglecting the covenant, leading them into even the worship of false gods sometimes. And so the continual breaking of the covenant eventually led to those covenant curses that are outlined in Deuteronomy, that what will happen if you neglect God's covenant and turn away from it, follow other gods. It actually says right in Deuteronomy, God will send you to a foreign land. Although it says, if from there you hear, God God can redeem you and bring you back. But uh, so the book is one of the main themes is that the reason we're in exile is because uh, this this history of disobedience that goes through the history of Israel and Judah. And so that that's one of the themes that we we see there. But there's also a theme coming out of Second uh, Samuel seven, of course, these promises to David that there will always be someone on the throne that he's he's perpetually uh, committed to David and this relationship and, and the kingship of David and the dynasty. And at the end of the book of Kings, like I said, um, there is still a son of David on the throne, Jehoiakim, but it's not fulfilled yet. So it's looking forward to something to fulfill it, um, those promises. But there's this there's this kind of tension between the disobedience to the Mosaic law and God's grace represented in the covenant. So the human responsibility on one hand, but God's gracious uh, character on the other. And so uh, realizing it's addressed to these exiles and it's bringing both in there. Both of those themes, I think, um, maybe there's there's some hope being addressed to the exiles as well. But also uh, a very uh, significant part of the message is that we broke the covenant. That's why we're here. And there's this theme of calling for repentance that we need to repent in exile. So uh, that's that's how I view. So the book of Samuel was probably not all composed in the exile. There's probably was uh, the Bible talks about different sources that are used like the um um, that are mentioned um, th- throughout the history. And the historian, the Deuteronomist, if we want to call him that, uh, drew on these pre- pre-existing works, but probably wasn't completed until the exile. So the completed or canonical books we, as we have them in Samuel and Kings were probably completed in exile, although they drew on earlier works, no doubt. As an historian, they drew on lots of uh, whatever sources they had, had available. And put them together and un- under inspiration of god's spirit um composed what god wanted us to know and wanted the people to hear about their history the significant parts of their history so um speaking of history what do you um, what's your view on the historicity of the the writing itself so i i view these books as a an example of ancient historiography so i think a little bit in the commentary I talk a bit about um, some similarities with Greek historians like Herodotus and, and others, and uh, other other scholars have have written whole books about this. But um, it's it's ancient history writing, often called historiography, and it is important to distinguish that from modern history writing because it has different conventions, different different expectations. So modern history, uh, whether we're you know, students of history today or not, in modern history writing. They don't really look for a meaning in history, for one thing, and it uh, depends on the historian who's writing, but they, they try to be objective. In ancient historiography, there was no call to be objective. In fact, the whole point to writing it was to show the point to history, show the meaning we can get out of it, and have a, a very, you could say, biased message, but a clear message. Biased doesn't mean it's it's false, but they, they all had, history was told slant with a purpose. So the books of Samuel are told with a specific, usually theological purpose in mind. And so that wouldn't really be the same as modern history writing. Also, the his, historians write in kind of what some scholars call using fictional, uh, fictional genre. 
I don't like to use the word fiction because most people think fiction is antithetical to history. <laughs> and I'm not suggesting that it's not talking about events that really happened. But what it does is it uses the same kind of literary conventions, you could say, as um, kind of uh, that, that are kind of fictionalized. Like sometimes you have time um, chronological differences, like something can be narrated out of order. Sometimes you'll you'll have access to the thoughts of, of a character speaking. Um, the way that they, they describe characters, the way they describe events is all done using the same kind of literary devices you might in telling a really good story rather than just kind of this removed objective description of events. And it also has a very theological bias. Um, like in the Book of Kings, sometimes it'll say, you know, this nation attacked Israel because the Lord was mad at them or they, they violated the uh, covenant of the Lord or something. Well, if a, a modern history writer would want to know, well, why did that nation invade? There must have been a reason, a political reason or something. But the ancient his, historiographer is not that interested in it. And instead just wants to say, interprets theologically and say, well, really this was because God was allowing them to um, to be attacked, so to bring them back to him or something like that. So they have a very theological perspective and they ignore a lot of things that modern hist historians would want to know about, like, um, for example, political machinations that led to that invasion or something like that. So I, I, I think it represents um, true events that happened. But um, I think we do need to take into account that it is an ancient genre of historiography. So I sometimes talk about how, you know, in the New Testament, Hebrew says, God spoke to us in many different ways in the past. You know, I grew up with the King James, diverse ways, diverse. And uh, one, different genres, you know, like I talked about, um, the Psalms are poetic. We get that right away when it says God is a rock. We know this is a poem. It's not meaning God's a sedimentary object. But we take into account that genre. And as different genres were used. Now, God is my rock is not literally true if we mean a rock is just a rock. God's not just a rock. But we know by the convention what it's meaning. And so similarly, uh, ancient historiography is a genre. So where it can convey things in its own ways from its own perspective. And it's not false because it's doing that. That's actually the way that they wrote history back then. And... For example, um, Thucydides, an ancient Greek historian, talks about the speeches that he puts into his history. And he didn't always have access to actual transcripts of the speeches, say, that a king or a warrior might make when they're going to battle. And he said he put into the mouth of the character what he thought was most likely what was said, based on all that he researched and all that he knew about the event. So that, that was acceptable practice in ancient historiography. The Bible likely had a similar type of genre it's dealing with in Samuel. So in Samuel, some of the speeches that might be in there aren't necessarily come from transcripts or that we'd have to think, I believe God's spirit inspired them, but not that you just downloaded all this information and the person just wrote it out, but they used their own faculties. They used the research and they used the, in the genre, it's completely appropriate to provide a speech that you think is the closest thing that would have been said at the time. So that just as an example of that. Um, All right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That, yeah. That makes sense. So um, you uh, list out several um, in your section on the theology of Samuel. You list out several topics. So if we could go over those. Um, so the first two are the fulfillment of the prophetic word and trust in God. What are the key points about those? 
Well, the the whole the the history, the larger history, the deuteristic history, is really um, concerned with the prophetic word and the fulfillment of the prophetic word, and we see uh, fulfillments that happen short term, where something is prophesied and it, it comes to pass very quickly. Sometimes there's long term ones, like uh, the birth of Josiah is is uh, prophesied around the schism between the northern and uh, southern kingdoms. And he doesn't come along for hundreds of years, and then he's born. So there's sometimes long-term prophecy, sometimes short-term prophecy. We see this in Samuel when um, the Eli dynasty is rejected, and God said he's going to raise up a faithful uh, priest. And this really isn't fulfilled until Zadok is installed as priest uh, much, much later. And and, uh, so that's kind of a long-term prophecy. But other other ones, short-term, where Samuel... Um, says to Saul that uh, God's rejecting you and he's finding a man after God's own heart or a neighbor who's better than you or something like that, which doesn't place, take place immediately, but uh, but in a much shorter time frame. So I think that we can look through it and see the prophetic word um, uh, being fulfilled in, in throughout the story. And uh, trust in God is another theme that's really important, I think, especially early on in 1 Samuel. I think this comes across quite a bit with the story of Saul compared to David, as Saul continues to, instead of trust God with his destiny or accept the prophetic word, um, he always kind of fights against it and always wants to hear something new from God that agrees with what he wants, uh, basically. So he hears uh, that he's disobedient and he he's uh, his dynasty won't continue, but he continues on anyway. He, he hears he's rejected from being the king in, in chapter 15. But he won't let go of the kingship. And uh, he doesn't want to trust God's word. Instead, he's, he seeks out any other means he can to find the word, even going, to, of course, to the seance in chapter 28, where, lo and behold, Samuel shows up and tells him the same thing he's told him all along, right? Whereas David is is willing to trust God. He he want, he craves God's word. He has this ephod with the priest he's, he's, he's uh, rescued. And he, he asks God, but when he hears from God, he he seems to trust God. So even when a circumstance comes around where he has, for example, a chance to kill Saul, he has a couple really clear chances where he could do that. He chooses not to because he's trusting God, that God will bring about um, his, his kingship and that he's not going to raise his hand against God's anointed. So I think that the theme of trusting God rather than trusting some kind of superstitious ritual comes up again and again in the story of Saul, uh, especially. And we see that David is living his lo- a life of trust, um, not perfectly and not through the whole thing, of course, but uh, it, many times in contrast to Saul. All right. And then we have the seriousness of sin and the importance of true repentance. Yeah, and these kind of go together. I think in the story, um, it's it's very clear sin is a serious issue, and repentance is the only cure because God reacts in, in grace to the repentant. So we see this in in Saul, where his first big sin in chapter thirteen, where he does not wait for Samuel to offer the sacrifice, and you read the story and you can be a little sympathetic to Saul here. It's some confusing commands involved, perhaps. Um, the men are following away. He feels like he's got to do something. He offers the sacrifice. Samuel's late. He had Saul Samuel had a good excuse, is right? Late, the text says, right? So he didn't show up at the appointed time. And Samuel had previously told him, "Do whatever your hand finds to do, because God is with you." 
And so he he offers a sacrifice. It's very very confusing. Samuel, of course, shows up just after he does it, and uh, and tells him that he's he's uh, he's sinned. But Saul, instead of repenting, yeah, um, he just kind of continues on, and he doesn't. He often makes excuses. He'll say, "Oh, but the people are falling away. But this, but this." He has an excuse for everything. So um, at that point, it says his dynasty won't continue, but it didn't actually say he's completely rejected as king. And But in chapter 15, when he fails to um, fulfill uh, the, the the command of God with the Amalekites, um, he, he is rejected as king. But before this, he's called on his sin by Samuel. Samuel shows up and says, how come you didn't obey the word of the Lord? And, and um, Saul is like, I did obey outright lies and then he kind of fudges a bit well the people pressured me well this and he's got all these excuses and then in the end uh he's he's completely rejected as king but saul doesn't repent there's no mention of repentance so the words for repent there's a couple of them in the old testament there's shuv which is kind of literally turn around naham is to kind of feel regret change your mind these types of things and uh, none of that is ascribed to saul in fact at the end of chapter 15 after his disobedience with the Amalekites, we get no idea that Saul even has a conscience at all or that he feels regret about what he's done. Instead, he's just he's just angry. And of course, he turns that anger into on, onto David and tries to kill David later. Where at the end of chapter 15, we have God regretting, Samuel regretting, Saul, nothing, right? So there's this lack of repentance, which uh, is, is it really key. So later on, people often compare... Saul sins versus David. David seems way worse, right? That's what many people say. You know, he he seduces or or, or rapes, depending how we understand, with Bathsheba, and, uh, and then he kills her husband. Her husband killed. Uh, talk about a horrible sin. But when David is called on um, his sin, he instantly repents. Now we might look at it and think it's not really an elaborate, long repentance, but he instantly says, "I've sinned against the Lord." He repents right away. And uh, God responds right away to the repentance in, in grace. But we know, never see that in Saul. And so I think it is a, a really important theological theme that we see through this. And uh, Saul ends up, of course, just uh, digging in his heels, continuing in his sin, and end up, ends up doing actually much more horrible things than David that most people don't think about. Like he has the whole entire town of Nob destroyed, gets... Uh, um, his right hand man to kill the priests and they completely destroy the entire town men women and children which is what he was supposed to do with the Amalekites but instead he does it against his own town of Israel and the priestly town and so he he ends up doing a lot of horrific things um, because there's no repentance and he just continues in sin so the seriousness of sin mm -hmm. has ramifications for Saul's the end of his kingship but later in in David's life we see the seriousness of sin that even though he's forgiven um, there's a lot of consequences that, uh, and fallout in David's life where he was doing kind of having such a stellar uh, kingship in so many ways, so much so that he's looked back as an ideal king for that phase of his kingship. But after his sin, he, he has uh, there's devastating consequences for loss of his children, for his loss of, uh, I guess, uh, ability to to reign. Uh, properly or even um, take care of his family and make the right decisions for for the country we see this over and over so the, the devastating consequences of sin follow him throughout his life despite god's forgiveness
All right. And we'll get to some of those in more detail later. So um, then the Davidic covenant, and then, of course, it's tied to the Messiah, the anointed one. Um, What can you say about the Davidic covenant? And particularly the question, is it conditional or unconditional? Because some scriptures seem to say one, some scriptures seem seem to say the other. Yeah, so um, if we look at Samuel, I should have maybe looked at that today. I may not remember it all by heart, but uh, 2 Samuel 7, of course, when uh, David says he wants to build the temple, and then God says, well, no, I'm going to build you a house. You're not going to build me a house. And and he gives this great covenant to David and talks about how his descendant will build the temple and that he's committed to that descendant even if he uh, disobeys. He's not going to reject him like he did Saul, his predecessor. So there seems to be this unconditionality. It does say if he sins, he will be uh, he will be punished by the hands of men, but he will never take away his steadfast love from him. So I, I read it as it is unconditional. That is, it's unconditional that this this covenant will come to fruition, that God will fulfill his promises. But it's conditional in the in the way that they will be, not that part of the covenant, but that. As an Israelite, he still has to obey God's word, be holy, uh, follow the Mosaic Covenant. And if he doesn't, God will punish him. And it says that right in there. But he'll never take away this covenant love. So, and I think that's the distinction. It's not that the the David Eve didn't have to obey the law or, or be righteous or follow God, but that in spite of the sin and failures of the Davidic line, God still is going to bring this covenant to fruition which I see eventually, of course, through Jesus, this happening. But we see this in the book of Kings, where people, the kings continually turn away, but God doesn't turn his back on uh, the Davidic line. Um, eventually, the covenant promise or covenant curses of Deuteronomy come to fruition at the end of Kings, when the the Davidic line and their um, the monarchy comes to an end. Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed. But like I said, at the end of at the end of Kings, there's still hope that there's a Davidic son out there that god can still bring these to to fruition and we see in the book of chronicles that uh it picks up it's written much later in the post-exilic period but it's it's focused a lot on the davidic um monarch as well and the covenant and the davidic covenant that's um told in second uh in first chronicles 17 which is kind of a parallel text with second samuel 7 it actually starts to theologize even more and it talks about um samuel said you're you're uh, throne and your kingdom will be established forever in chronicles it talks about it being god's kingdom so you know you get into the new testament you got to talk about the kingdom of god well that's right there in chronicles where the the kingdom that the that the anointed one the mashiach the, the son of david is on is god's kingdom and this comes up several times in chronicles where it's referred to as the kingdom of god or kingdom of the lord and so that this is this davidic promise is still being held out by the chronicler who who lived centuries afterwards, and um, is still looking for the fulfillment of these promises, and uh, eventually fulfilled into the New Testament. All right. So, um, the book is um, called Samuel. So, tell us more about Samuel. We've got birth-to-death narrative. We've got his um, character. We've got his activity, his accomplishments. Um, What can you say about him? Well, Samuel is um, is a fascinating figure. He's a hero of the faith, but he's also just a man. So it, it's really interesting. I love how the Bible um, 
doesn't hide the faults of his characters, but gives us well-rounded characters many times. Especially, I think the most drawn, well-drawn character is probably David. But as far as prophets go, and uh, Samuel is a really interesting one who has a, is a complex character, as all of us are complex characters. And so we see that in the book of Samuel, he he does a lot of fantastic things, but also there's hints in it that he sometimes he's doing self-interested things. So he's a really interesting um, leader in that way. He's also kind of a as far as him as a hero, you could say, to start, like he he as a young man becomes this priest and this prophet that God speaks to. God doesn't let his words fall to the ground. He's He leads Israel into a great repentance to turn away from their idols. He leads them into, into victory over the Philistines uh, through their repentance. And uh, he he does faithfully judge Israel. It never says that he was a corrupt judge in any way. Now, his sons, however, become corrupt judges. I'll get to that in one second. But So Samuel is kind of a multitasker in that he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was also a judge. A judge is a leader of Israel, so not a king, but kind of like the prophet-priest-king that we think of when we talk about Jesus in the New Testament. But he's a prophet-priest-judge or leader in Israel. And he is, uh, now most of the judges we see in the book of Judges uh, at the beginning, there's some like Othniel and some really ideal judges that do great things. As the book proceeds, uh, you get more and more um, problems with the judges, right? And eventually you have Samson, who doesn't seem aware he has any kind of calling at all and just wants to uh, <laughs> pursue Philistine women, etc. And so now we have into the into the era where Samuel is born, we have Eli. We're told he judged Israel too. And the Eli house falls and they're corrupt. Samuel takes over and God uses them mightily. And he's a kingmaker too. He's the one who's who anoints Saul and anoints David. So he's a very prominent man that God uses in a lot of um, amazing ways. When David's on the run from Samuel from Saul, he goes to Rabbah where Samuel is, and Samuel comes out and the spirit takes Saul, or first of all, takes all the people that are coming to get David, and they all just fall down and prophesy. It's like the, the spirit does battle for him there and rescues David. And uh so, so Samuel is this fantastic figure in that way. But we see hints of Samuel's complexity, perhaps. And I, I don't mean us to be too hard on Samuel for this, but when the people ask for a king, it says this this displeased Samuel. He's he's very upset about it. And he's, he's, he talks to God about it, and God seems less upset than Samuel about it. He says, look, it's not you, it's me they're rejecting. And But Samuel's still upset about it, not happy with it. Some even go back to when he was a kid and, and think about his character um, whether he was slow to recognize God's voice. Well, he's just a kid, of course, but when God calls to him multiple times, he doesn't recognize, thinks it's Eli. Um, most people think that's more on, on Eli than, than it, and there hadn't been visions at the time. But going ahead, when he gets really <laughs> upset about the turning away, or uh, how they rejected his leadership, they said, get us a king to lead us. And um, that's, that's what... Uh, he was the leader of Israel. He uses the same Hebrew word there. So he's upset. And then in, in uh, when God says, just give them a king, he brings them all together, and he he seems to delay this. God says even uh, near the end of that chapter, he says, no, give them a king, and then he sends them all home. Seems like he might be delaying this somewhat. And uh, so some people think that there's a self-interested uh, part there. He delays appointing a king. He's upset at the notion. And then in chapter 12, um, when he kind of gives this farewell speech, although he's not completely retired or gone, 
and he talks about um, his his sons are ruling with them. Well, we've already been told that his sons are actually corrupt and taking bribes. This is part of the reason why the people wanted a king. They said, your sons aren't following your way. They're corrupt. Samuel seems either unaware or covering up that his sons are corrupt. So it seems either he has a blind spot to his kids, which probably a lot of us do with our kids, or he is uh, unaware maybe, or he's covering it up. Probably not that, but he seems to say, my sons and I are here and we served you faithfully. And he also seems to um, characterize the the story of why they needed a king. He says, you know, after after Nahash attacks you, you said you needed a king. Well, in the story, actually, uh, the request for a king was way before Nahash threatened Israel. So he seems to characterize it in an inaccurate way. And he never tells the people that God acquiesced to them having a king. He didn't say, God said, yes, we should have a king. He seems to just kind of ball them out for asking for a king. And... uh, tries to dissuade them from it you know, by saying all these horrible things the king will do. The king will even enslave all of you, and God will not listen to you anymore. Um, and that never really happens in Israel's history, um, what he's saying. So he's characterizing the king in a way, some of what he says is very is very true, and other times it seems like he's just trying to talk him out of it. And at one point, the people even say, no, 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 we will have a king. They knew he was trying to talk him out of it. So there's this kind of... <clears throat> He's presented as this character, excuse me, he's understandably put off when they kind of reject his leadership. But he does follow God in anointing a new king. And, and, And so he's obedient, he's not disobedient in that, but we see, I think, a hint of his his flawed character or his humanity, we could say, and through these through these things. But he never tells the people that God had ordained this. Um, or that he commanded him to give a king. And he doesn't tell them about how he met with Saul. He was sent to meet with Saul in chapter 9. You know, and God even kind of taps him on the shoulder. This is the guy here who's going to deliver Israel. Anoint him. And then even at that point, he seems to delay the anointing till they're all by themselves and anoints him. So some people think Samuel was trying to make sure he was in a position to influence the new king quite a bit. He doesn't anoint him publicly. And he kind of gets him to join the prophets. Later, we're told... Um, that Saul is the head of the prophets. So is he kind of putting himself in a position of authority over the king as well? Um, so a lot of interesting factors with Samuel's uh, Samuel's character. And when he anoints Saul, he gets him to go do, he tell, starts to telling all these prophetic signs that are going to happen. And, uh, uh, and they come true, sometimes not in the way Samuel predicted. He says, at that point, after the spirit comes on, he'll change into a new man. But the narrator says, as he turned away from Samuel, God changed him. So there's, hmm. there's some unpredictability that God is doing something here. The spirit is at work, that Samuel isn't in control. Maybe he's trying to control things in a way that, I'm not saying they're sinful, but at least show his humanity and that he's maybe he's trying to do what he thinks is best for Israel, right? Um, but um, it does seem like perhaps he's trying to... Um, have some significant influence on the king. And it's interesting with David, once David's king, Samuel's really out of the picture. I mean, he does go to Rabbah to see Samuel, and Samuel kind of rescues him, or the spirit does, you could say. But other than that, Saul, Samuel's not really involved in David's life. And some scholars look back and think that Samuel's mixed messaging with Saul actually got Saul in trouble. Um, there's different, different, like you mentioned earlier, Samuel was late when he was supposed to uh, offer the sacrifice. There's 
the various things in there that and some of the ways he spoke to Samuel could be ambiguous. Um, they think David's success might have to do with the fact that Samuel stepped back and just let David go rather than try to kind of hold on to power through his influence of the monarch, perhaps. Um, yeah, well, that's a little bit about Samuel. All right. Fascinating, fascinating. So um, could you um, say more about kings, uh, particularly uh, what uh, ancient Near Eastern kings would have been like at that time? So uh, what did the people want? Why did they want it? Why was it such a big deal for them to get a king? Why was it? I mean, you already talked about Samuel not wanting the king, but why is this as crucial a change as some scholars would say and others? I mean, some will say this is definitely just a, a bold sin against God, and others will say, no, God was kind of okay with it. And so, well, it, it's an interesting question. Like the role of the monarchy in Israel, was it meant to be? Is it a bold sin? Is it and part of God's plan? So it's, it's right. And the other question yeah. I forgot to say yeah. in there is. Is there a tension within Scripture itself? Mm-hmm. Is Scripture of one mind about this issue? or? Well, some people, when they talk about the authorship of Samuel or the sources that were used to put together, talk about pro-monarchic sources and anti-monarchic sources right. that were used. Sure. And this is commonly found in kind of the critical literature. So they think some chapters or portions of chapters may have come from those who thought the monarchy was a bad idea or was a sin or something like that. And then others come from circles that view the monarchy as a positive development or support of the monarchy in, in Israel. So these different sources there. And so there, and the reason that some of these source critical scholars think there might be multiple sources is because there is a tension in there for sure. You do have this God saying that asking for a king is rejecting me. Well, that can't be a good thing, rejecting God. Now, the, uh, re- Israel was originally a theocracy, so they didn't have a king. God was their king, theocracy, uh, God is the king. But the book of Judges seems to really keep pointing to the fact that we need a king. You know, like, in the, there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and look at all the terrible things that are happening, right? It seems to be the book of Judges ends up pointing that we really need a king, and that's where Samuel starts out. Um, the absence of a king when we really see we needed one. And Deuteronomy, the the book precedes the history, of course, that influences the history so significantly, has laws for the king, But and we can talk about that a little bit, how many of the kings would break the laws, Solomon being kind of a, an example of breaking all of those laws of the king. But it doesn't say that the king will be a bad thing. It says, when you choose a king, this is what you're supposed to do. It seems to anticipate that a king is in Israel's future. Uh, when you um, choose a king, he should be one of your um, uh, a fellow Israelite, and then it gives all these rules about what the king should be like. But it does seem to anticipate that a king um, is, I don't know, a natural progression, or it is going to happen. Um, whether it's because of the people's sin or not, it doesn't really say all the time. So there, there is kind of a bit of a tension because on one hand, the kingship is a rejection of God. On the other hand, God quickly acquiesces and says, yes, make a king. And then he, ha- he chooses a king. Um, that's what it means after my own heart. God chooses David, right? And this, this becomes an integral movement in salvation history where the, the anointed one, the Mashiach or Messiah, um, this is God's plan for salvation coming from the line of David, a kingship. So there's, there is a tension there, I think, for sure. 
Um, I, I am fine with there being tension in there. And I think um, one way we could think about it is God working through human frailty to bring about his salvation in that a lot of the desire for the king could have been a rejection of God or a lack of trust in God as their leader. But through this, God works this mighty plan of salvation through the Messiah or messianic hopes that will come attached to the Davidic line and are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So you, you've kind of got rejection, but God works through that human frailty or human sin even to to bring about his, his goodwill and his salvation for Israel. So um, the people wanted a king. What were they missing with the um, structures of leadership that they already had? Why was it so important for them? Well, I think early on the judges seemed to work much better. <laughs> like when you had good faithful judges, there'd be a problem. God would send a judge and basically would deliver them from their enemy. And when they asked for a king in First Samuel 8, they say they want a king who will go before us and fight our battles. So a key element of the anointed one or the king is salvation, salvation from the enemy. And that is, of course, into Messiah. Messiah is the one who saves. Jesus' name means um, the Lord saves. And so the, the king is to be one who will save them or deliver them from their enemies. Now, the people also say, like all the other nations, they say, give us a king like the other nations. Well, the, the other nations' kings will do a lot of the things that Samuel said, right? Take their children and, and uh, from their homes, take uh, a bunch of their wealth, take, take, take. There's all these things the king will do. Uh, part of it is what a king in the ancient world would need to do in order to rule. But there's also a self-interestedness of the king and uh, a way that it can abuse their subjects, which happens invariably in, in uh, kind of in secular contexts in the ancient Near East. Kings can be um, good at uh, war, good at establishing security, um, perhaps good at building an economy, but they invariably also do a lot of horrible things to people to stay in power, to enrich themselves and those close to them. And so there are a lot of aspects of the king like the nations are bad things. And this is what we end up seeing in Israel's monarchy as well. So there's good things that the king does, but what they primarily wanted initially, they wanted someone to deliver them from um, uh, the other nations. And so what were they not getting at the time? I guess um, the lot, Eli is said to have judged Israel for so many years, but we don't get any sense that he was a kind of a, a deliverer in the sense of a in battle. Samuel does lead them in a deliverance through their repentance with the Philistines, but and he ends up, you know, he hacks Agag to death, so he knows how to use a sword apparently. But it, it doesn't seem to be quite the same thing as some of those early judges that led led to deliverance. So um, that that seems to be primarily what is mentioned when they first want the king. And the king, a good king in the ancient Near East, was to bring kind of order from chaos or to, to bring stability. Um, you know, people not even that long ago in our history, but especially in the ancient world, were just barely surviving, right? There, there's always kind of a struggle to live, to, to get enough food, to have security, to not die. And the king is supposed to bring a measure of order and security to the nation. A good king would do that. And so they wanted that out of the king as well. And part, partly is national security is they need, they need deliverance from their enemies, which is a, a key element there. All right. And you've mentioned Deuteronomy a couple of times, uh, saying something to the effect of when you have a king, do this. But um, wouldn't a lot of scholars, more critical scholars, say that would have been written act, 
after the fact. We have these things that happened. Israel wants a king. And so mm-hmm. the pro-monarchic um, sources would have written that into Deuter- Deuteronomy to justify it. Well, uh, Deuteronomy is very critical, uh, has a lot of rules around the king. So most critical scholars see like the law of the king. Is it uh, Deuteronomy 17? Uh, I can't remember for sure. Um, the laws of the king, um, some think that they're written specifically to criticize Solomon. So it says, uh, you know, a king shouldn't uh, multiply silver and gold, shouldn't be rich. That's exactly what Solomon does. It says they shouldn't get multiply their horses. That's what Solomon does. And it says and if you, they shouldn't get their horses from Egypt. That's what Solomon does. He goes to Egypt to get his horses. He shouldn't have many wives, a king. Well, Solomon has almost a thousand if you count his concubines. So all of the law of the king, Solomon just systematically seems to break all of these laws. And uh, so many people, critical scholars, will say Deuteronomy was written in light of Solomon. Or you could say Solomon's story was written and they made sure they mentioned everywhere it was broken. So uh, we'd have to get into a debate over the, the dating of Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy, if it comes from Moses, of course, predates the monarchy. Many critical scholars date uh, Deuteronomy to the time of Josiah or the discovery of the law book under Josiah that uh, uh, ends up uh, leading his reform. It seems to be a form of Deuteronomy in in the Passover that that's celebrated. And uh, the reason he tears his clothes, many scholars say, is because he read those curses at the end of the book. So the law of the Lord that's found... Um, so many people date it to Josiah's time. Others think it's it's older than that, but it was found in Josiah's time. There's, there's a lot of scholarly debate over that issue. But as far as uh, whether it, the anticipation of the king being a thing that will happen, I, I'm not aware of people saying that is pro-monarchic sources doing that or not, because uh, the laws really proscribe um, the actions of the king to the extent that they make most of the kings look bad later. Um, I'm not sure, but there, there's a lot of different theories on the composition of Deuteronomy, some breaking it into, you know, like 10 or 12 different sources even. Others think that the core book w- was very old, um, proto-Deuteronomy. And then the Deuteronomist who wrote the history wrote the beginning and end of Deuteronomy as we have it now to turn it into a history book, the introduction to the history book. Because at the beginning, you have the kind of the stories where they enter Canaan, they fight the, the kings. Then you have all these laws. And then the end, it mentions joshua quite a bit as they're going to enter the land so it makes it a continuation into into the deuteronomistic history um but i'm not sure if you had a particular uh, scholar or theory in mind there about the pro-monarchic source in deuteronomy no i didn't (laughs) but uh, uh, by by all accounts a lot of the scholarly theories are very complex and scholars don't all agree with each other because they're they're so complex (laughs) (laughs) right all right, so um, we talked before about um, Saul's disobedience. So how does that really function in the story with David as the I- so-called ideal king, though he screws up a whole lot? But um, if you can do a little more with contrasting Saul and David in, in their positions, their roles, how they function in the story. Okay, well, so... so um Initially, Saul starts out ideally. You know, his first act to save Jabesh Gilead is him just fulfilling the role to a T, or the role of a good judge, some would say. Robert Polson's mm-hmm. written a lot about that. He's got some compelling um, things to say there. But um, Saul 
the spirit comes on Saul like it does on the judges. And he uh, he cuts up the oxen, sends a piece to all Israel to get them all to join the battle. And then they all go and they go out and they fight. They rescue Jabesh Gilead. It seems like he's just uh, functioning as the king, what they wanted, someone to take out their enemies, to deliver them, and even uniting Israel together. So he starts off very well, but then he quickly starts to go astray when he disobeys. Now, the first disobedience we did talk about, there's a little bit of ambiguity there. I, I'm sympathetic for him, but he, we see in Saul, uh, his character, a lack of repentance, and uh, that he he seems to have kind of a... Um, He's out to prove himself. Maybe he has a low view of himself. Uh, Samuel says at one point, you're small in your own eyes. Well, he and was he, hiding at one point. He's hiding amongst the baggage when they've dr- drawn lots to see who would be king. And it comes on him. And where is he? He's hiding over there. Right. So there's something in his character that's not uh, definitely not ideal for being a leader. Right. Uh, uh, perhaps a lack of self-esteem. And he saw it was small in his own eyes. Later on, when he uh, in chapter 15, when he defeats the Amalekites, but doesn't carry the word of the Lord through to destroy them, he uh, he builds a monument in his own honor. Like so, there's there's this kind of ego part of him too, where it's like he's he's got a low self esteem, but he's trying to compensate in a certain way. Um, and there's definitely a lack of repentance. And uh, and this is, I think, a, a key difference between him and David. David seems to take great offense in the Goliath story that this person is speaking evil of, of God's people. He's defying the armies of God, and God will deliver without a sword. Like He has this theological imagination or this theological perspective that Saul seems to lack. Saul, when Goliath comes out, Saul's the tallest man in Israel. He's a head higher than everybody else. He would be probably the best matchup for this tall man from the, the Philistia. But he's sitting in his tent not not going out to fight and so we have a heroic david who's quickly willing to do something about it and trust god david also i think has a good plan but he also has this trust in god so david's complex but he has one side of him that's very passionate about god that comes out and of course in the traditions of david that with the psalms we see uh, the heart of david in in any psalms that actually came from david um, we probably get some theological insight in there we have him dancing before the ark passionately like he he's passionate about god we never get a sense that saul ever cares about that at all he's he's quite superstitious you know in the battle with the philistines where his son jonathan goes out to to make a headway and and actually brings about a deliverance saul's still sitting there doing nothing and he he wants uh the priest by him he he says bring the ephod let's get an oracle let's find out something about this and then when he finds uh, he says how about nobody eats until dark let's all swear nobody eats let's go fight until we're avenged on my enemies, which is interesting, doesn't say God's enemies. So there's this kind of uh, self-centered thing there. But he's he's really into superstitious kind of rituals rather than just trusting God. And we don't see in any kind of love or adoration or worship of God coming out of him or a perspective that um, he's offended for God's reputation like like David was. So I, I think there, that's a difference in their characters there too. And then at the end when uh, it comes out that, of course, Jonathan in that fight did dip his uh, staff in a little honey, got a little bit of sustenance and kept fighting. And then uh, they draw lots and it comes on Jonathan. He's willing to kill Jonathan. He, he just is going to follow these superstitious rituals through. When really it was Saul who disobeyed the, the Lord. If anyone disobeyed that day, we already knew who it was. 
Um, but he's quite willing to just blame someone else. And even his own son, he'd be willing to execute. And um, so I think we see very different characters between the two. Absolutely. David is has a lot of his own flaws, of course, and later in life does um, some terrible things. He's definitely a very passionate man. And uh, he uh, he has conflicts with uh, the people he leads. Joab's an interesting character. I think one of you want to chat about Joab at one point. But I think we can see a big difference in, in, especially in how their relationship with God, from what we can glean from this um, this story, is that David seems to really have one and Saul doesn't. Or Saul's just not that interested in that. He's superstitious. He's into offering sacrifices before they go to battle. He's, he's, he's looking for some kind of prophetic word, but uh, we don't see any kind of act of worship or that he cares about God's people. Um, he's more con- concerned about his power and his reputation. And even in his death, he's, he's, he wants his, his um, armor bearer to kill him because he's afraid people will make sport of him. Even in his death, he's concerned about his reputation. He seems like he's very, very concerned about that type of thing. And uh, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, feel free to ask any more questions about that if I've lost my train. <laughs> train yeah. Of so there seems to be a really ideal relationship between David and Jonathan, where they even make a covenant. Mm. Um, so why is this uh, crucial through the story? It doesn't just happen once, but we see it throughout the David-Saul narrative and even after. Yeah, so with, with Jonathan, you have a completely different perspective on David's rise. So Saul, of course, doesn't even know if it's David, but is out to kill David because he suspects he might be the new king that God is bringing in. And he's going to um, go to great lengths to try and kill him. Jonathan, who really, in a lot of ways, has the most to lose. He would be the king after Saul. But he willingly is going to let David be king. He he gives him his clothes, which in the, in the book of Samuel seems to be representative of the kingdom. You know, when um, Saul grabs... Samuel's cloak and it tears. He says, "You've torn the the kingdom is being torn from you," and so he's he's symbolically given giving the kingdom to David, and with great sacrifice, giving away his potential to be the king himself. And uh, but he's willing to support David's kingship. So it's significant in that way, and it gives a different picture of of um, supporting God's choice and God's king, the man after God's own heart. You re- you turn your back on your own selfish gain and you're willing to follow and they do make a covenant of course they meet up several times jonathan jonathan's an interesting character and he uh he wants to support david but he seems also a little naive about his dad because it takes him a while to really get that his dad is going to kill david uh despite things he seems like no no he wouldn't do that but eventually he he realizes that and at one point we do see that jonathan says uh you will be king to david when they meet up when david's on the run and he says and i'll and i'll be second in command so Jonathan didn't think he was going to die in the long run, but he thought he would support this kingdom and he would serve in the kingdom. But tragically, of course, Jonathan dies along with his father uh, in the fight with the Philistines. But it's, uh, So I think it gives a, a great picture of forsaking all for the kingdom in a way, theologically looking back at it. And we see that David and Solomon had a very close relationship. Uh, Solomon, David and Jonathan had a, a very close relationship. And we see that in his lament after their death in, in early in Second Samuel. And Saul attempts to kill Jonathan, well, counting the honey story where he, he right, proclaimed yeah. a fast. There are t- two times where he threw his spear at Jonathan. He throws a spear. So 
like he did it with David too. Right. So, uh, he Saul Saul is well. Of course, we didn't mention about the evil spirit that comes on Saul, and and you know some I interpret this as a mental illness or something like this. The manic king. Well, I, I think uh, it's something like that. Even though we don't need to discount that there was an evil spirit that came on him, but he was clearly not right in the head and was willing to go to great evil lengths. And uh, he was he seems unstable. One minute he's trying to kill David, the next he says, "I love you, David." <laughs> you know, and he, he like he goes back and forth all the time. Uh, largely, though, continuing on this path of, of pursuing David, even though it leads to his own doom. So he's a very unstable character, even willing to kill his son. After, in that conversation, when they're at that, um, is the New Moon Festival or whatever, um, he says, don't you understand that David means you won't be king? Uh, he seems like he's concerned about his son succeeding, and then he tries to kill his son. So it's uh, it's very unstable. So I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating and tragic and sad picture, um, Saul's character, for sure as he clearly goes back and forth, although largely is um, um, in pursuit of David and in rebellion, defiance against the prophetic word. All right. So uh, one really interesting story is uh, David going over to the Philistines. So this is something that, yeah, he's on the run from Saul, but this what is really going on here? Yeah, that is a, a fascinating story how David... Um, leaves Israel and to find uh, sanctuary with the Philistines when Saul is pursuing him. Some some of them interpreted that perhaps a bit of David stopping to trust God, but perhaps perhaps that should be understandable. But he, he leaves he leaves the nation, he goes to the Philistines and uh, serves seems to serve them for a long time. The biblical narrator clearly tells us that he wasn't helping the Philistine cause and the people he was going out to fight regularly were actually uh, Israel's enemies. In a lot of ways, he was kind of making up for the incomplete conquest, fighting um, peoples who weren't uh, defeated yet in the land. But he would come back and say, oh yeah, I was fighting uh, Judah today or whatever. He would always claim he was, had Philistine interests in heart. Um, some some views of David we, we haven't really got into who um, are very skeptical of the stories in Samuel and use things like this to say, see, I bet you David was a deserter. He really was with the Philistines, and he really um, he he usurped the throne by force. So they read this whole story as um, against the grain. That everything it says David did was good. They think, well, I think they're protesting too much. He really did the opposite. So that when he joins the Philistines, they say, see, he joined the Philistines and fought against Judah. The text says he never actually did that. He fought other people. Oh no, I think he did. So there's there is a tendency amongst some scholars to kind of read against the grain of the text in in all of these stories like this and think that the whole thing is 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 a way to try and make David look good when really he was bad all the time. Um, but I don't I don't view it that way. But it is a fascinating story that he is living with the Philistines, and of course it gets to that point where they're going to go finally fight Israel. And this is when Saul and, and uh, is leading Israel out to battle, and the Israelites are going. I mean, the Philistines are going. David's going with them, and Achish, his king, wants him to go. He trusts him implicitly, and the other Philistine kings or lords say, "No, no, we're not. We're not having David come with us." And so it's fascinating to think: what if they didn't protest? What would have happened if David marched out with the Philistines against Israel? Um, well, it could be the Philistine lords knew what they were talking about. They say. 
Um, he might relieve us of our heads. <laughs> you know, he might turn against us. He's, of course, famous for killing um, um, G- Goliath, the, the Phil- Philistine hero. And so he could betray us in battle. And I, I, I suspect that's what would have happened. I can't see that David was going to go into that battle and then just fight against Israel. He clearly um, loved God and the nation, and uh, he would have used this as an opportunity to turn the tide and fight against them, I think. But we we don't know in the text. It doesn't say because it never happened. Of course, he wasn't allowed to go with them. So some so, say, well, that's that's just a cover-up that David probably did go with them. Um I just think there's no good reason to read against everything the text says and just to be suspicious. But some people have made some best-selling biographies of David by just always reading against the grain of the text. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Either way, it's a very strange story. All right. And then we have, of course, the David and Bathsheba um, story, and he gets Uriah killed. But um, let's focus on Nathan coming to David. Uh, we already touched on this, but why is this so important? Um, and how is this pivotal Pivotal then in terms of what happens to David and his rule after that? So why is it, uh, why is it so important? Well, of course, David had gotten away with his murder. And by all accounts, no one would have known any of the evil he did. And so he was starting to act like one of those kings of the other nations that take, take, take. He takes Bathsheba, he uh, he kills her husband, and he gets away with it. Nobody would have known, probably even Bathsheba wouldn't have known that he had anything to do with Uriah's death because he dies in battle. And uh, the nation wouldn't have known there was ever a, a tryst or a, an affair or, or rape, however we're going to understand his relationship with Bathsheba, because he marries her quite quickly after and uh, the, the child could have been understood as premature. No one would have really known what was going on with all that. And uh, he would have gotten away with it and continued into um, this, I guess, compromised conscience and life of sin. So God calls him on it, though, not willing to just uh, abandon David to that and calls the king to account. So I think it's a very significant moment in David's life. And he quickly confesses um, he sinned against the Lord. Um but there's there's ongoing ramifications for that, of course, in in the story. So it, it's it's very interesting. David confesses, but it seems that despite right away, as soon as he says that, he says, "Don't worry, David, um, you're going to live. God's not going to kill you." And this is because he, uh, in the story that he was just told, he said that person deserves to die. Who took the mm-hmm. lamb, right? So maybe uh, when he suddenly said, "You're the man." Um, turns the tables on David after he's um, leveled judgment. David may have thought that that would be his destiny to die, but the, he doesn't. And uh, his son, of course, dies that he, he conceived with Bathsheba. And then David continues to have so many um, problems after this. And some of it seems to be in, in whether he has the moral courage or character to to raise and guide the children or make the right decisions for the nations after as you read the story and think about him as a character, you wonder if he just feels morally compromised after that to an extent that he's he's kind of lost his edge and lost his ability to make the right call uh, and um, continues to make bad decisions. So he hears that his son has raped his, his daughter and he doesn't do anything about it. He's angry, but he doesn't do anything about it. And these types of things continue on and on. And uh, Absalom is a lot... Uh, 
um, kills his brother out of some leaves, but uh, David seems to um, not follow through with any kind of justice for that. He allows him to come back, and then, of course, he's on the run from Absalom. And even at, when Absalom dies, uh, there's another coup afterwards. It seems like David has kind of lost his uh, his edge or his moral courage to do the right thing for the nation or for his, his children as well after. And it all seems to start with the sins um, and being called on the sins by Nathan. So I, um, I sometimes think of it as kind of a... Um, David is just racing along high speed. Everything's going great. He's just this ideal king. And everything's going fine for him from one perspective. Even when he commits the sins, it's all fine from a human perspective until he runs into this wall of the prophetic word and it just kind of shatters him. And from then on, um, things are different in a lot of ways. Now we see in the Psalms, the heart of David, if we can um, see in any of the Psalms, his his knowledge of God's the depth of God's forgiveness and and grace, um, but in the character we see in Samuel going forward, uh, I do wonder whether there is this kind of he he feels compromised after that. There's there's something that's changed that he he's not the same dynamic leader we saw before. So the David is on the run from Saul, and then David is on the run from Absalom. So how do these two on-the-run stories function? I mean, the first is through no fault of David. It's because God has chosen him, right? And it's Saul who is the bad guy. But then the second one, he's on the run because of the bad decisions you've just been talking about. So how do those work together? Of course, David on the run from Saul is, like you said, no fault of his own initially. He he delivers Israel from the Philistines. He continues to deliver them, not only with Goliath, but with others. And Saul's jealousy grows. God's spirit's on David and evil spirit's on Saul. Um, and there's just, there's no, there's no room for David in Israel. He has to be on the run or be killed. And so it, it's very different than when he's on the run from Absalom later. When it comes to Absalom, we've seen like a I uh, just mentioned some bad decisions that, that were made along the way, which would have been difficult decisions, right? Because um, he loves his children. So he doesn't punish Ammon for raping his daughter, which infuriates Absalom, who's, uh, uh, it was his sister. So he, his full sister, yeah. He's full sister, because David has multiple wives, of course. And so he he avenges her by killing um, Adonai, I mean, um, Ammon. And, uh, so that could have been, if the king would have just dealt with that initially, we, we wouldn't have had that happen. So in a lot of ways, this is, he's, he's kind of getting just desserts for his, his lack of, of bringing justice as the king should do, um, perhaps because he loves his children. But, uh, you know, as we all learn, we have to make difficult decisions. Love can mean making a hard decision, and uh, sometimes what children need most is punishment or discipline of some way. And so we could look back at that with, uh, with Ammon, nothing was done and it leads to um, paternal uh, uh, murder there as Absalom kills him. And then later when Absalom is uh, taking over Israel, um, he, David doesn't want anything bad to happen to Absalom, which I can understand. I would never want my child to be killed. But it's interesting when Joab goes and uh, when Absalom is stuck in his hair and he's hanging from the tree, 
um, Joab grabs some sticks and beats him. Doesn't actually appear Joab does the actual fatal blow, but he hits him. And those sticks are the same sticks that Proverbs talks about sparing the rod. It means you hate your son. So it's a disciplinary stick. There may be something Mm. there that there's also this lack of willing to follow through with uh, justice in regards to his son, Jonathan, as well. Uh, not Jonathan, I mean Absalom, sorry. Um, so we, we see that there, there's a lot, of, a lot of David's mistakes, kind of his, his uh, chickens come home to roost, you could say, in that story, that he is culpable for a lot of it. But he, we, we do see him, though, and I think it is a sympathetic picture of David at that point. We feel for him as he's on the run, and uh, he, still, he still prays um, to God and, uh, and receives deliverance. You know, he prays that God would confound the wisdom of Ahithophel and, uh, you know, um, sends his own um, counselor there. So he's still relying on God, but he's, he's kind of a pitiful character at that point, um, instead of this kind of dynamic, powerful, um, take charge individual that we see earlier in the story. So there's definitely a contrast there. All right. And finally, um, you write about application. I mean, the whole commentary series, a big part of it is application. So what can the individual believer, what can the church uh, learn from Samuel? How can we apply that? Well, yeah, there's there's probably a lot, a lot we could do. Well, start with the story of um, Saul. I think it's it's really interesting that he has this kind of penchant for superstitious guidance or looking for signs um, before he makes a decision, decision throughout his story. And it seems to um, be a big problem for him in his life. And um, I think about that with uh, how Christians we want to hear from God or get guidance uh, about decisions. And it's interesting in this story how there seems to be this kind of negative view of this relying on signs for guidance we get that in the story of Gideon of course Gideon is told to go do something he says well how how will I know give me a sign and this happens over and over in Gideon's life he keeps getting these signs and God remarkably uh, does it you know like he'll say the fleece wet water dry or the ground dry and then reverse it and he, he God indulges him so much which just shows God's grace and his care and his love but it definitely isn't setting it up as an ideal of how we should operate in faith. After all, the angel already told him exactly what to do. Um, and so we have this with uh, with Saul as well, where he's told to do things, but he you know, he needs to offer a sacrifice before he'll go into the battle. He, he uh, gets everyone to take an oath of fasting before he do it. Let's draw lots and find the sinner, even though he's the one who disobeyed God. And, and in the end, of course, he's so desperate for some word that he wants um, um, that agrees with what he wants, he goes even to the uh, the medium in Endor, or the witch in Endor, and ha- there's a seance. So I think that it is criticizing this. Um, I think for uh, Christians, we should be aware of that. That uh, I'm not saying God can't ever provide a sign or guidance. He clearly does in Scripture. But it, I think this story and the story of Gideon is, is definitely not holding this up as a model. In fact, it's um, we shouldn't demand signs, but actually hold on to what God has told us have faith in his word. Um, and we see this with David. David continually seems to trust that God's going to work it out. His men at one point when he, in, in the cave, and he has uh, David has a chance because Saul comes into the cave to use the bathroom, and his men are like, hey, this is what God said. This is your chance. God said that I'm delivering him into your hands. Well, someone's actually kind of giving him a little prophecy there saying, this God wants you to kill him. 
But David instead is just trusting that God's going to work it out and he rejects that and he doesn't require that. He's living more of a life of faith, of trust. And so I think the juxtaposition of that is we can apply to our life that we should trust God in his word. We have what's revealed in his word and we don't need more than that. You know, and we don't need to say, uh, I need a sign for uh, all these decisions in my life. Instead, follow God's word and, uh, and and make decisions based on faith and trust in God. So I think there's that emphasis on trust, which is important. I think uh, as far as the seriousness of sin, which we already talked about, I think it's sobering to think about um, that we don't take sin lightly in our lives. We see with David how quick he is to repent and how God doesn't kill him, but sin still seems to have ongoing negative effects in his life. And so that could be a sobering warning for us, not to say that God in his grace does not redeem us when we turn away from sin. And I think we see that in the story. God is quick to forgive the repentant. But also to see that sin has long-term ramifications in many instances. And not, and uh, I think so that that could be a, a sobering element that we should take from the story. And when we think about applying it to our lives and, and think about the seriousness of sin, the need for repentance and God's grace. But the the uh, Davidic covenant and the Messiah, of course, is very applicable to think that God promises um, and He his promises come true. And I think that's one thing we see as the book of Samuel and the Messiah, the anointed one, continues through the prophetic writings and into the New Testament. We see that God is faithful, faithful to all his promises. And we, and um, even when it looked like it was not going to work out, I mean, David does some horrible things. Um, the the kingship seems like it's in trouble many times through the history of, of Israel. But God did not give up on his promises to the Messiah. So that we, we can trust in God's word, I think, is something we can really apply um, from this narrative. Yeah. The other one I would add, too, is that, especially ever since the time of Constantine, the church has always carried that spirit of, we want a king. We are rejecting the crucified Messiah who rose again. We want a worldly king who can deliver us from worldly enemies. And the church is still bound by that spirit today to a large extent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. A search for kind of power in this age rather than um, a spiritual deliverance. Or, or even in the Old Testament, you have some of those kings of Israel, like Manasseh in the book of Kings is probably presented as the worst king of Israel, but he lives the longest and reigns for 55 years. And archaeological evidence shows that Israel prospered during that time. So some scholars, mm. kind of usually unbelieving scholars, look back and say Manasseh was the greatest king in Israel's history because they had wealth and security in his day. So uh, it's interesting how the Bible takes a very different perspective, right? Success isn't as the world defines it. In fact, that king who may have been the most successful king economically in Israel's history was actually one of the most wicked kings in Israel's history from God's perspective. So to, to have a different perspective on life um, rather than thinking we need the power, we need the temporal success that the world would say is important. Instead, God um, wants us to seek him first and his kingdom and all these other things will we'll be added to you, right? And I think, I think that we see that from this too. All right. Amen. Well, this is a good place to end. So I'm Dennis Metzler. Um, you've been listening to The Charge. We've been with uh, Dr. Paul Evans, uh, professor of Old Testament at McMaster Divinity College. He's the author of a commentary on First and Second Samuel in, by Zondervan, the Story of God commentary series. So there'll be uh, links for that. Check that out. And 
Dr. Evans, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for chatting. That was fun. All right. Peace to everyone.